Moving now right along to our storyteller message. This is number seven, believe it or not. We have one more to go. Number eight with the story about the talents going to be next week in Matthew 25. Today, we're going to be focusing on a story about a vineyard again. Now, uh, we all know about vineyards here in Sonoma County. I think I passed five or six on the way into church today. Um, they require a lot of work, and they're the, the whole goal of, of growing all these grapes is come harvest time, you gather in all the grapes and you press them into juice and the juice becomes wine and the wine becomes the industry that draws a lot of tourists and a lot of people buying and uh, drinking the uh, fruit of the vine, so to speak. So today's story is also about a vineyard, but today's story is so much different than last week's story. Last week's story, of course, we're talking about Jesus being the master storyteller. Jesus loves to tell stories. He loves to illustrate kingdom of God principles through the telling of stories, right? So he uses his objects and humor, current events. He has these unforgettable characters like, like the Good Samaritan and, and people like that. He's, um, he tells stories about agricultural life, which was the life of all the people in Palestine in the first century. Uh, he loves to tell stories because stories get past theological conundrums and confusion, and it goes right to the heart of the matter. We're going to learn something about God today through this telling of the story about the workers, these evil farmers, the wicked people that were in this vineyard mistreating what God had given them. Uh, and maybe you'll see yourself in the story. A lot of times as we're reading these parables, that's what happens. So... Last week, I just want to do a quick review. Last week was the parable of the vineyard. You remember? The parable of the vineyard was the unexpected twist where this uh, owner of the vineyard, he goes out and hires all these workers to work in his vineyard, and they're all day laborers, right? Some of them start at the very beginning of the day. Some of the workers he hires in the middle of the day, and some of the workers are at five o'clock, one hour before quitting time, and the owner hires them. And yet, at the end of the day, when everybody lines up to get paid, he has the people who started last to be first in line, right? Because Jesus had just been teaching, those who are last shall be first, the first shall be last. And he's illustrating that with this story. And so the last people get in line and they get paid a full day's wage, right? And so what do we learn about God from that story? We learn in this next slide, Christian Theology 101, that there's, there's different terminologies that they use. One of the terminologies is justice. Justice means that you get what you deserve. And a lot of people want justice. But I want to tell you in the kingdom of God, you do not want justice. You want something better than justice. You want mercy and you want grace. Because justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. The Bible says for all of us, the wages or the consequences, the paycheck for sin is death. That's what justice is. But then you, if you get mercy or you get grace, you get the second half of that verse in Romans 6. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So instead of getting justice, what we deserve, which is punishment for our sins and our wrongdoing and our rebellion or our indifference toward God, he gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us the grace through our Lord Jesus Christ, through what he did for us on the cross. And Troy, thank you so much. That was an awesome, one of the best communion, communion meditations I've heard in a while from John chapter 6, and that's not an easy 
topic to talk about. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Okay, explain that. All right, so uh, we come to the, to the story today. This is the story about an owner of, of a vineyard and how he built it and how he hired these workers, but these weren't day laborers, right? This, is where, this isn't where the owner is right there actively working in his vineyard. This is where the owner has a vineyard, owns the land, which what, what happened commonly in Galilee in the first century a lot of the, wor- the people that were living in Galilee, they did not own the land. They worked the land. And as they worked the land, they worked the land for a share of the profits that came from the harvest of that land, right? So we get right into the story now, and it says, Jesus, and, and let me give you the setting of this. Jesus is now in the temple area. He's already come into Jerusalem uh, on what we call Palm Sunday, the first day of the week which would be the first day right after the Sabbath, which is a Saturday. First day of the week is Palm Sunday. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a colt, and everybody's going, Hosanna, praise God in heaven to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus has this warm, warm welcome from a bunch of people who five days later are going to be yelling, crucify him. And in between those five days, Jesus does some teaching in the temple. And this is one of the stories that Jesus tells, which I don't think he enjoyed telling the story at all. I think it was heartbreaking for Jesus to tell this story. But he had to speak the truth to them because the Bible talks about our need to speak the truth in love. If you really love and you care, some, care for somebody and they're messing up their lives and they're going off a cliff with the way they're living their life, it's not loving really to them to say, hey, you're going off a cliff, but that's fine. You know, you do your thing, I'll do mine. Have a good whatever happens after you go off the cliff, you know? Loving to them would be saying, you're going off a cliff. You need to stop. You need to turn around or do whatever you can to turn them back from self-destruction. Jesus was trying to do that to the religious leaders in Jerusalem in his day because they were opposing him. They did not accept him as the Messiah, as the Savior. They did not accept him as the anointed one of God. So Jesus is trying to convince them to turn around before it's too late. And so he tells this story about these evil tenant farmers. Jesus says this in Matthew 21. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit around it for pressing out the grape juice, and he built a lookout tower. Now that's interesting because all the religious leaders in the day would immediately understand that story and they would say, oh yeah, that comes out of Isaiah. That comes out of the prophecy of Isaiah where he talks about Israel being the vineyard that God had built and God had developed. And so they understand, you're talking about Israel when you're talking about this vineyard. God had built the vineyard. And then look what the owner of the vineyard did. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and he moved to another country. So unlike that other story where the guy, the owner was there at the end of the day to pay the day laborers for the harvesting of the grapes, this guy goes away, moves to another country, and now the tenant farmers are working the land. So what happens? You say, look, you can work the land, you can live here, everything's fine. Here's the deal. When harvest time comes, the owner says, I get a percentage of the harvest and you keep the rest. And the tenant farmer said, deal, that's fair. That's the way we're going to work it. 
But what you're going to see, and that's why we're going to call them, that's why they're called evil tenant farmers in this story, is because when the time for the harvest came, the time to give the owner of the, of the land what he was due for leasing the land to these people, they did not treat him or his messengers, his servants, the way they should have, right? The treatment of these servants, uh, look what it says here now. It says, at the time of the grape harvest... So now here's crunch time. Here's where we're going to divide up the profits. At the time of the grape harvest, he, meaning the owner of the vineyard, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop. That's only right, only just, only fair. But the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So shamefully treating his, his messengers, only doing what was right and fair. So the landowner... Instead of giving up, the landover sent a larger group of his servants to collect for him. But the results were the same. Now, I got to tell you, the owner uh, of, of the vineyard in Jesus' story here, who's represented by God himself, the owner, this, if, if you were listening to this story as a first century person in Israel, the owner would be incomprehensible to you. You would not understand any owner like this because the owner is incomprehensibly kind to people who had become his enemies. This landowner's too nice. Whether they were aristocrats or artisan or peasants, whoever was listening, nobody would recognize the figure. No one would recognize the benevolence of this patron, this landowner. They say, "Why are you being so nice to these people? They treated your servants your servants shamefully. You ought to be pounding them into the ground and giving them their just due." So even if Jesus' listeners did not recognize the image of God, even if they didn't recognize the figurative language that Jesus was using to say, hey, wait a minute, you, you realize the owner of this story is God himself. You realize the vineyard is Israel. You realize that these tenants, I'm talking to you, religious leaders in Jerusalem, you're the tenants. Maybe they didn't get that, but they, at least they, they recognized the, the amazing kindness and the long-suffering of the owner of this, of this vineyard. So let me just explain to you. Let me just say, okay, put, put all the cards on the table, and, and who are we talking about? Just so we're going to make it absolutely clear. Here's Jesus' explanation of the story of the evil farmers, right? You have the landowner in the story. And as I said before, the landowner is God himself. You have the vineyard in the story. The vineyard that, who was it that planted it? Did the tenants plant, plant the garden? Did the tenants build the watchtower? Did the tenants build the, the, the well or the area for the wine press? No, they didn't do any of it. The landowner did. The landowner is represented by God. The vineyard is Israel. They were the beneficiaries of the vineyard that God built. Then you have the tenant farmers, the ones that God hired to do that and who cut the deal with them saying, look, you serve me and you live on the land and I bless you and you have these blessings. But when the time comes for the harvest, I get my percentage and you keep the rest. And they said, deal. The tenant farmers were the Jewish leaders. They were, they were the people that were in charge of giving God his share of the harvest. Only when the time for the harvest came, they refused to give God his share. And then you have the landowner's servants, right? So now the landowner is sending his representatives, sending his messengers to say, look, it's time to collect, to give the landowner what he deserves, right? So those are prophets and priests, uh, people who throughout Israel's history, God had sent 
as his messengers who were faithful to God, who preached repentance to the people. How many of those times did God send his prophets? And instead of accepting the prophets, they said, you know, we don't like the message, so we're going to kill the messenger. And that's what God's people did. The, the history of the Old Testament is full of that persecution of the prophets. And so now we get, finally get to the point of the story where the landowner says, I've sent all these messengers, I've sent my servants to collect, they've shamefully treated every one of them. I tell you what, I am going to send my own son. And so he says in verse 37, he says, finally, the owner sent his son, thinking surely they will respect my son. So there's Matthew's gospel. I included Mark's because I think Mark puts it even more uh, uh, heartfelt, more like going into the emotion of it. He said, the owner, he, he had one left to send. Can you imagine sending all your servants and none of them come back? He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, surely, or they will respect my son, according to Mark's gospel in chapter 12. So, so finally, in, in this story, God sent his own son Jesus, uh, finally for, to the to the land to the tenant farmers. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus spoke absolute truth to them in a spirit of love. Jesus showed them what sacrificial love looks like, and all this is meant. Of course, all this is meant to soften the hearts of the listeners, to soften the hearts, to get them to listen to him, to get them to turn away from their stubbornness of refusing to believe that Jesus was Messiah, trying to say. We were wrong. We need to turn around. We need to start following you as our Lord and Messiah. And, and now you're going to see the rest of the story of, of answering the question, what is going to happen to these religious leaders? What is going to happen to the Jewish people and the Jewish nation if they refuse to accept Jesus as God's Messiah, as the anointed one? So here it comes, the way Jesus is wording the story here, he's He's sort of veiling both himself and the fate of the Jewish people. Uh, he's, he's veiling what's going to happen to himself, which was only days away. But he's, but he's trying to get him to see the truth of, of what is happening. So look at their reaction now. So now you're saying, surely if, I, if, if the owner sends his own son after all this mistreatment, surely the people would soften their hearts. They would repent. They'd say, fine, we'll give the owner a share. We'll give him what, uh, the, the percentage of the harvest that is due him. But look at this reaction. This is why they're called evil. When the tenant farmer saw his son coming, instead of saying, wow, we, we, we got to stop this rebellion, Instead of doing that, they said to one another, here comes the heir to the estate. Come, let's kill him. Let's get the estate for ourselves. Like they're, as if they could really do that. So they're, not only could they not do that, but they, they're self-deluded into thinking by killing the son, they're going to become the owners of the estate. They grabbed him, they dragged him out of the vineyard, and they murdered him. Now, that's pretty sad. In fact, I, I found a little graphic of that um, that I wanted to show you guys. Just this idea of, okay, in the vineyard, it's harvest time. God sends his, his one and only son to show the people the way to live, to be the sacrifice for their sin, to show them the way back to God, to say, instead of getting justice, God wants to pour out his mercy to you. He wants to pour out his grace in your life. He's sending Jesus. And instead of 
welcoming Jesus instead of accepting him and bowing to his rightful authority as their Lord and Messiah, they mistreat him, they dragged him out of the vineyard, and they murdered him. Now, that action of these evil tenants, that it's just, it's consistently callous. I mean, they go from bad to worse. Um, they go from this uh, rejection of God's messengers and his prophets, and now they're rejecting the one son as their rightful Messiah. They're, that's the final straw in God's, it, from God's perspective, looking down from heaven. It's like that's the final straw that is ultimately going to bring wrath on the people who refuse to accept Jesus as their Messiah. Even then, God gave Israel, they, even after Jesus was crucified and laid in the tomb and three days later he rose from the dead, even after that, many of the Jewish people refused to believe the miracle of the resurrection. And so God in his, in his amazing uh, patience and his long-suffering with the Jewish people, he gave them 40 more years between the resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. He gave them 40 years to hear the gospel, to see the transformed lives of the early followers of Jesus, to see the miracles that God was, um, was working through the, the hands of the apostles. And they some of the Jews did turn around. Some of the priests even turn around. It says in Acts chapter 6 that even a large number of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So many of the Jews in that nation, they did turn back to God in faith. But for many of the religious leaders, they rejected leaders, uh, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They rejected the good news message about Christ that was being communicated by, the, by Peter and the apostles. And the religious Jewish leaders, they, instead of embracing uh, Christ as their Messiah, their rightful ruler, they arrested Peter, they arrested the apostles, and they told them, and here's what we read in Acts chapter 4, it says, so the Jewish high council, they called the apostles back in, and they commanded them, you know, instead of, instead of saying, hey, look, we caught a break, and God is pouring out his grace, we crucified Jesus as Messiah, but God says, I'll forgive you anyway. And instead of turning back to God, instead of humbling themselves, they're telling Peter and John, they're, they're saying, we command you never again to speak or to teach in the name of Jesus. And you remember Peter's reply? Peter's reply is like, seriously, you're telling me I can't talk about Jesus anymore, the one who changed my life, the one who I betrayed and I denied that I ever even knew Jesus and he forgave me anyway. And he, and, and he says, Peter, you're the rock. I'm going to build my church on your leadership and on your testimony when you said you are the Christ, the son of the living God, I'm going to build your church. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Peter's going to say, Jesus did all that for me and you're telling me to never speak about him again. And, and Peter says, we cannot stop telling about everything that we've seen and heard. So Peter's like, you decide. We're, we're going to obey God or we're going to obey you? Hmm, I think we're going to obey God. So here's Israel. They're unprepared. They're not ready to receive their master. And why? Because Israel's leaders, they failed in their stewardship to acknowledge their one true Lord. When the cat was away, the mice said, we will play. And even when the Lord sent his prophets to rebuke them and to try to bring them back to God, for the most part, Israel and its leaders, they rejected God's prophets too. You remember how they rejected God's prophets? You remember Jeremiah? 
Jeremiah is speaking a, a, a message of repentance. Israel, you've, not, you've, been, you've, you've turned away from the living God. You've turned toward idols. You need to repent. You need to come back to the one true God. And instead of accepting Jeremiah's message, they threw him into prison. They, they put his feet and his hands in the stocks in Jeremiah chapter 20. Isaiah gets sawn in two at the end of his life. Uh, there's, a, there's a prophet named Zechariah that Jesus mentions in Matthew 23. Zechariah, who in 2 Chronicles 24, he stood up to rebuke the idol worshipers within Israel. And instead of heeding his message, they cut him down and they stoned him to death right in the temple grounds during the time of King Joash. So Jesus knows all about how God sent his messengers over and over to the people of Israel to help turn them back to God and how many times instead of heeding the message they just shot the messenger so now Jesus himself comes along and he's God's Messiah surely they'll listen to my son God says instead of respecting the son they would rather kill him somehow thinking they could get away with their treachery no they would not even get away with this evil behavior and unfortunately for the Jewish nation, that day of reckoning was coming. So now Jesus, he's driving his point home about this story of the evil farmers, taking us to its conclusion. And Jesus asks the question to the religious leaders. You answer the question. You've heard the story. You've heard what these evil farmers did in the story. What do you think the owner of the vineyard's going to do when he comes back and sees those farmers? He let them Put the noose around their own neck, so to speak. The religious leaders replied, He will put those wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others. And you got to think about this, okay? Who, when God is talking about others, who are the others? The others is when Jesus says, Go out and make disciples of all nations, all those Gentiles out there. The Bible says that now in the church age where we are between the, the, the time of Christ's first coming and the time of Christ's return, the Bible says we are now living in the times of the Gentiles. We're living in the church age where anybody, whether you're Jewish background or not, anybody who hears the good news about Christ and responds to him in faith, they're part now of the kingdom of God. They become citizens in the household of God. The religious leader replied, oh, he's going he's gonna to put those wicked men to death. He's going to give that vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Now, it's, it's very, um, it's sad. As I told you, I don't think Jesus had any pleasure. I don't think he was smiling with glee as he was telling them this story. I think his heart was broken because he came to his own and his own did not receive him. You remember Jesus on, on top of the hill uh, on the Mount of Olives looking down over Jerusalem and he started weeping. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wish you would just accept your Messiah when he came to you. Now your house is going to be left to you desolate. Paul says this 20 years later, 20 years after all these events happened, and now Paul is over in northern Greece, and he's planting a church among uh, uh, people in the city of Thessalonica, and it's called the Letter to the Thessalonians. I had to practice that. Thessalonians. Look what Paul says in his letter, talking about the circumstances that happened, that were happening then and that had happened years before to Jesus. He says, and then, dear brothers... And sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, 
You imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea who because of their belief in Christ Jesus, now he's talking about the Jewish people who believed in Jesus, who were living in Israel at the time. He says because they believed in Jesus, they suffered from their own people, the Jews. For some of the Jews killed the prophets and some even killed the Lord Jesus. And now they have persecuted us too. They fail to please God. They work against all humanity as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins. This was about in the year 50, 20 years after Paul said these words, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. The Roman armies came and they wiped out the city of Jerusalem. They tore down, burned down, tore down the temple stone by stone. But the anger of God has caught up with them at last. The kingdom of God and all the spiritual advantages that were given to Israel, that were God's people, Jesus is saying, you weren't faithful to the covenant that you made from God, and now God is going to give that uh, vineyard to other farmers. They would be comprised primarily of us, of Gentiles, of those who are not Jewish background by blood, and a remnant and a remnant of Jews who do believe. Jesus asked them the question, have you never read this in the scripture? So now Jesus is saying, you, you just said the right answer, right? He's going to give his vineyard over to people who are going to be faithful to give him his share of the harvest. And Jesus says, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. The stone the builders rejected. And, and he's trying to get them to see, you're rejecting somebody that you say can't be Messiah, but the one that you say isn't Messiah is actually the cornerstone. He's going to be the cornerstone. The, the whole church is going to be built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. And you've got him right in front of you and you can't even see it. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. Uh, that's a quote from Psalm 118. Jesus is the absolute cornerstone of our Christian faith. He's ultimately going to become, unfortunately, the heavy stone that crushes people with God's judgment if those people reject him. And so here's the question for us today. What are you going to do with Jesus? Is he going to be the cornerstone of your life? Or will he end up being the heavy stone that crushes you with God's judgment if you reject him? Will you build your life on Jesus, the cornerstone, or will you trip over him only to stumble and fall? Jesus is offering us mercy and grace and forgiveness now. But there's a warning. Choose him before it's too late. Choose him before God's judgment comes on those who reject Jesus as Messiah. So verse 45, Jesus wraps up this story and he says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. Remember who he's talking to, the Jewish leaders in the temple area in Jerusalem. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. So when the leading priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they realized 
hey, guess what? They, they had enough discernment to know this. They realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. In case you didn't know, there's the explanation. A lot of times you read enough of the story in context and you understand what it means. They were the wicked farmers Jesus is talking about. So here's Matthew, the gospel writer, leaving no doubt as to who these wicked farmers were in the story. They were the leading priests. They were the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the ones who consistently opposed Jesus and his teaching. The ones who ultimately, three days later, would vote thumbs down on whether he was the Messiah, the anointed one of God, on whether he should live or die, and they voted to crucify him. And they had to turn him over to the Romans to do it. So they, they did that in rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Now, here's the Apostle Paul. So, you know, he wrote that to the Thessalonians about how the Jews were opposing Jesus and the early church, and they're heaping up God's wrath on them. But here's where Paul comes in in the Roman letter, and Paul says, wait, just so you know, there's hope for the Jewish people. It's not over for them yet. It's not too late for the Jewish people, because he explains to the Christ followers at Rome what happened as a result of the Jewish leaders rejecting Jesus as Messiah. So Paul says this in Romans chapter 11. He says, did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient as God made salvation available to the Gentiles, but he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. It's kind of interesting that when the Jewish leaders would see how great the church is doing, how blessed those people are. My, look how they love one another. Look how God answers their prayers. Look how God is blessing them. Look how they share these resources and they build this community of faith that's so much better than what we have in Judaism. And, and he said God did this to make them become jealous and claim it for themselves. And then he says, now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they, talking about the Jews, finally accept it. And is that not what we're praying for right now? Is that not why God allowed Israel to become a nation again? So that they could all be gathered in one place and so God could do another miracle in their lives and so that many, many thousands and millions of people who claim to be Jewish would see Jesus, Yeshua, as their Messiah after all. That's our hope and prayer. That's my hope and prayer. Back to where Paul says God is able to work all things together for good. Look, he concludes this in Romans chapter 11. He says, once, once you Gentiles were rebels against God. Now, now he's saying, hey, hey, just so you Gentiles who are now believers in Christ, don't get all on your high horse. Don't think like, hey, we're God's chosen people now. And no matter what we do, God, God, we've got God's favor. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not the way God's works. God works when his people are faithful to him. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, when the people of Israel rebelled against him, and, but God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels, talking about the Jewish people who don't believe in Jesus. Now they are the rebels and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. The, the success of God's community, the church, is designed by God to make the Jewish people jealous and say, I want what you have. And hopefully, in faith and in repentance, they will turn around and they will become followers of Jesus. 
But it was sad. It was sad in Jesus' day because he was saying that God was going to take that vineyard away from those evil farmers and he was going to give it to a people who would produce its fruit. In 40 years, just about, almost to the day, I mean, 40 years and a couple of months, because historians say that it was on August 6th in the year 70 AD that after Jesus had told the story of the evil farmers, in 70 AD in the summer, the Roman legions came into Israel. They laid siege to the city. The Jewish historian Josephus records the details to us, the Roman soldiers breached the wall of Jerusalem that summer. Thousands upon thousands of Jews were killed. Many thousands died in that attack, whether they were armed or not, whether they were men or women, young or old, it didn't matter because by that time the Romans had developed such a hatred for the Jewish people that once they breached the walls of the city, they just killed anybody that was in their path. Then the temple... The temple, now the center of Judaism, where all the sacrifices took place, where the priesthood, where the, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and, and brought atonement for the sins of the Jewish people, that entire temple, the entire Jewish sacrificial system came to a grinding halt that day in the year 70 A.D., and thousands were killed. The temple was burned to the ground. General Titus of the Roman army ordered that all the stones of the temple be torn down. More thousands of Jews were taken prisoner, the ones that survived, and they were dragged off to other Roman cities for slavery or for death in the arena. And I read that not to, I, I don't say it with any happiness at all. It's a terrible, sad story. But it, it's indicative of, of the judgment of God that would fall upon anybody who would reject Jesus as God's Messiah. So let's fast forward to today. You know, I told you Jesus didn't like telling the story. I don't think it was in his heart I don't, to, to, to pronounce judgment, but he had to speak the truth in love to them. Paul asked the Galatians, he says, have I become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? Paul didn't tell them the truth to be their enemy. He told them the truth because he was their friend, because he wanted to save them from the future destruction. So for us today... In 2019, what do you think Jesus wants us to take away from this story? Number one, number one, God is the owner. This is your fill in the blank for your bulletin. Number one, God is the owner, not you. You're not running the show. God isn't your co-pilot. He's, he's either the pilot of your life or God's not going along for the ride. God is the owner. He deserves your worship and your respect and your loyalty and your love. God deserves it all. So number two, whoever God sends to you, listen to him. You remember in Hebrews, that great letter to the Jewish Christians, Hebrews starts off, it says, in the past, God spoke to our fathers in many times, in many different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. How many times Jesus is baptized Here's a voice out of heaven. You remember what that voice out of heaven said? This is my beloved son whom I love. And then what did it say? Listen to him. Jesus comes, he's on the Mount of Transfiguration six months before he's going to the cross. 
Jesus is transformed before their eyes, before James and Peter and John, and his, eye, his clothes are dazzling white, and the holiness, the real Jesus is showing before them. And they're all bowing down. Should we build shelters or tabernacles? We don't even know what to do. And a voice comes out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Whoever God sends to you, and especially when it's God himself and Jesus, listen to him. Pay attention to what he has to say. Make sure you do what he's asking you to do. And then number three, and this is the saddest part of all, but you have to speak the truth in love. You turn away from Jesus. You refuse to acknowledge his authority. You turn away from him, and sadly, you will be turned away from God. Even to the Christ followers in Hebrews, God's warning was still the same, almost the same wording that Jesus gave to these Jewish leaders as he's in the temple. He, uh, the, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, he says, be careful, be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who's speaking. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. So make sure you remember God's the owner, not you, that when God sends somebody, listen to him and don't turn away from Jesus because he is the way and the truth and the life. Let's be like the good listeners that Jesus wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount with when he said, he or she who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that's like a man who's building his house on the rock. And Jesus is our rock. You remember the old rock and roll illustration? Jesus is my rock and my name is on the roll. And I hope that's the attitude that you all have today. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and they're going to close in a song. And I want, to, I want us to bow our heads and pray together. And I, I just want to say before we, we bow for prayer, you know, this is not an easy message to speak. It doesn't give me any joy to say, hey, you need to have Christ in your life. You need to bow your knee to him or else. Somebody say, or else what? Well, when you read this story in its context and you see how serious the biblical authors are when they say, look, Jesus says he's the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means that we need to do that before it's too late. And we need to communicate that truth in love to people we care about who are not Christ followers before it is too late. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, this is a difficult story that you told us because your word warns us it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrible thing to rebel against your rightful authority over our lives. And it's a terrible thing to reject Jesus as Messiah when he's the one who gave his life so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life. And so, Lord, because you sent Jesus to save us from our sins, because salvation is found in no one else, because Jesus is the cornerstone, him alone, Lord, we today, we declare to you in humility that we put all of our trust in Jesus we put all of our faith in him and he's, he, de, he deserves the loyalty of all that we are and have and can, and can give to you today. God, please forgive us when our attitudes are 
are milk toast, when our love for you is lukewarm. Forgive us when in our words and our deeds we don't acknowledge you as our Lord and Savior. We don't seem to deem you as that important. We don't put you as the highest priority of our lives. God, forgive us for that. Help us to turn around. Help us to remember that you are worth every uh, bit of energy, every sacrifice. Lord, you're, wi- you're worth every inconvenience that we could ever put on the altar to you because you are the way and the truth and the life and you are the means to have a right relationship with God. So, Lord Jesus, we trust in you. We trust in no one else. Christ alone, you're the cornerstone. And we pray that you'd help us to keep faithful to you all the days of our lives. In your name we pray, amen.